your word promises us that. And now we pray that you'll open our hearts, that we will not harden them, but we will open them and we will have a, a receptive spirit, Lord. We'll hear what you're trying to say to us. And I pray tonight that areas that maybe we have struggled with, areas, areas that we have maybe kept in secret, areas that have caused us grief and shame, I pray tonight that you will deliver us, that you're going to set us free because you love us so deeply and you want us to walk in a freedom maybe we've not experienced before. So I pray tonight that we will hear what you're trying to say to us. Open our understanding, I ask, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are acquainted with Philip Yancey. He's a well-known Christian author, and he wrote a book called Rumors of Another World. And in that book, he relates a story of when Magellan, who was an explorer, was traveling around South America. He's trying to find a a quicker way to trade in the east, right, from Europe. And so he's going around South America, and uh, as they're coming along the shores of Argentina, on the east side of South America, they notice uh, a region, and they called it Terra del Fugo, which means land of fire. And the way the reason got its name, many of the natives were always around the shores burning these fires. Well, the natives, when they were seeing these great sailing ships passing through the straits, they thought that they were just an apparition. In other words, they, they could not, they didn't believe it was reality because there was nothing in their previous experience that could help them identify with what they were seeing. So what they were, thought they were seeing was a spiritual thing. They just couldn't relate to it. But then later on, as uh, people you know, went on shore and they realized people came off these boats, then they, they, uh, they started realizing, hey, this is real. You know, this, is, this is something that uh, you know, is a lot, it's new to us. You know, so there was no way of experiencing this. And it's, it's, it's very interesting in our lives that for us to understand things in life, we have to have some basis of reference for it. You know, for example, a lot of us are, are maybe aware intellectually that there's actually radio waves passing through this room right now. There's actually television signals passing through this room right now. We're, we are aware of that. And we're aware of that because we have a receiver, and if we put a TV and plug it in, all of a sudden, you know, we get reception, and we start picking up on some of these these waves, right? If we have a radio, same thing, we have a receiver, we can pick up on these things. But we don't see them. We just know that they're here, and there's a way of receiving. It's the same thing in the spiritual world. How many realize tonight that there's actually angels in this room? It's just that we're not aware of it. We don't see them. But the Scriptures tell us that... Uh, that the Bible, God says he sends his angels to minister to thus to us who are the ones that are recipients of his gift of salvation. So God has angels in this room right now ministering, and we're not even aware of it. How many realize there's also demonic forces at work in this room trying to distract us, uh, trying to keep us from experiencing the truth, trying to keep us from t- hearing these words and responding to them? And when we leave the room, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, I just can't remember what I heard. You know, that's the work of a demonic force in our life. And so there are things happening that we're not always cognizant of. This is a great story in the Old Testament of a man by the name of Elisha who was a prophet. And uh, he had been actually telling the king of Israel 
some of the state secrets of the king of Syria. So every time he went to set an ambush against the king of Israel, the, you know, the prophet Elijah would have God tell him what was going on. God, he would go tell the king. And so the king of Syria was so frustrated. He thought somebody was, you know, you know, sharing state secrets. And they said, no, what it is is there's a man in Israel. He's a prophet of God and he knows what's going on. He said, well, we're going to have to stop this guy. And he sent an army to arrest one man. They got to a town called Dothan, and Elisha's there with his servant, and all of a sudden his servant is just in a panic because he looks, and there's this huge army surrounding the city, and he goes, my Lord, we're in trouble. He said, no, there's more for us than there are for them. And then he said, well, I don't see it. And then Elisha prayed this beautiful prayer, Lord, open the eyes of my servant. Immediately, he began to see a spiritual force surrounding the army, and at that moment, uh, Elisha prays, the army's blinded, they come and they say, you know, we're looking for this man named Elisha. He says, well, I know exactly who, who he is and where he is, and he leads them to be captured by his own king. It's a really an amazing story. I'm bringing all of this up because a lot of times we are so uh, indifferent to what God is really trying to accomplish in our lives. And there needs to be a growing awareness of this. We are living today in a time that there's a great need to be spiritually alert. You know, if ever there was an hour in our nation, we need to be alert. If there was ever an hour in our personal lives, it's now. We need to be alert. As a matter of fact, what is really tragic is that we're living in a time that understands more about God's created world and less about the one who created it all. Isn't that true? You know, think about our culture today. People know more about the world as it operates, but less about the one who created this world. You know, we're also living in a time in our nation's history where moral decay and corruption is impacting our understanding of what is right and wrong. We're more confused than ever before. You know, there's, there's more relativism that's ever, you know, more relativism. You know, laws are being changed today to reflect our distorted understanding of life. You know, we are trying to determine what is right. And yet the scriptures are teaching us this is what God says is right, this is what God says is wrong. And when you and I mess with that, all we're doing is hurting ourselves. We hurt ourselves as individuals, we hurt ourselves as a community, we hurt ourselves as a nation. And so we need to understand that. You know, what's happening is that we have a generation today rising up that neither knows God nor the things that God has done in the past. How many recognize Canada has some amazing, incredible Christian history? You know, if you were to go to Parliament, I've been there. I've been to Ottawa. I've seen those buildings. And there are scriptures etched on the, on the buildings. And yet most of us today are in a state of denial. We don't want anything to do with God. We're trying to remove God from our land. And yet our forefathers knew the need to have Almighty God help us as a nation. As a matter of fact, Proverbs tell us, you know, blessed or happy are the people whose God is the Lord. You know, and that's the truth. That's the happy people. Um, the problem with ignorance is that it always leads to sorrow and pain. And how does it come to that? Because somehow there's a generation that does not pass on this information to the next generation. There's somehow a gap between, you know, one generation to the next. And I want to take a look at that from the book of Judges today. Judges is a powerful reminder of the impact of sin and what it has on our lives. You know, recently I've, I've, uh, I've just encountered two experiences this week where people who were Christians for a long time, uh, and I, I actually know one of them, the other one I don't, had tremendous moral failures. 
And you wonder, how is that possible? How are people that, you know, seemingly strong, all of a sudden one day you find out that, you know, they're being sentenced to go to prison for doing things that, you know, even non-believers wouldn't do. Some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. You go, how does, how do we get to a place like that? That's what I want to talk about tonight. We're going to see how a person actually turns away from doing the right thing into doing the wrong thing. How do we get there? I mean, when you, you think about it, you know, here's a person that knows the right, here's a person that's doing what's right, and then eventually turns away from that and starts to do what's wrong. How did we get to that place, and where does that leave us and lead us? And that's what we're going to look at. So I'm going to look at three things that can, we can learn about what happens when we become disobedient. And we don't, this is kind of, starts out negative, but it's going to end up real positive. But I think we have to understand where this is going to take us. First of all, we need to know God is so loving, He's going to confront us. He's going to address us. Matter of fact, if we're God's children, He's going to deal with us. Listen to what it says here in Judges chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to discover this confrontation to the nation of Israel. The angel of the Lord, it says, went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt, led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Isn't that beautiful? We serve a covenant-keeping God, and God is a faithful God, and God always keeps up his end of the agreement. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, there's a lot of things in life you can't count on. There's a lot of disappointments. A lot of people will fail you, but I'll tell you one thing. God is faithful he will do what he says. He's good about that. Next verse, it says, verse 2, he says, And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. So in other words, God was sending them in in order to address the evil in the land. God was using the nation of Israel as a tool to address the evils of the land. They, they had just totally become perverse. There was moral corruption. I mean, these people were sacrificing their children. I mean, it was, you know, they were, they were literally uh, imploding. You know, every, every empire, every civilization that's ever fallen has, has fallen from within. You know, you'll read about other nations conquering them from the outside, but the reality was there was a day that those nations would have never been able to conquer them. But what happened was there was so much moral uh, rot on the inside that the nations are actually crumbling from moral decay. And we need to understand that's true of every civilization. You can study history. That's the great lesson of history. He says here, but you have disobeyed me. And then he asks the question that, why have you done this? You know, it's almost like asking a teenager, you know, why'd you do that? They go, I don't know. You know, it's, it's so amazing. You know, it's the way our minds work sometimes. You, know, you ask, why did you do this? Have you ever wondered to yourself, why did I do that? You know, and that's the nature of sin. Uh, you know, I was studying for chapter 20 and I noticed Satan is major, his major role is he's a deceiver and he deceives us. And the nature of sin is deception. And, you know, we think we're okay when in reality we're not okay. We have a false, you know, es- estimation of our true spiritual condition. And that's what sin does. It blinds us and we think everything is okay when the reality is we're moving in the wrong direction. And this is about, eventually is going to destroy us. So God starts to, you know, come to us. First of all, he comes to us in a gentle way. He kind of reminds us, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, it's just a verbal warning and then pretty soon it gets more intense, the warning. And the warnings intensify. 
And if you and I don't repent somewhere in the nice, you know, warning stage, eventually, you know, there's a, a cause and effect to sin. How many recognize that we can actually study science today because of the nature of who God is? He's built things with this cause and effect. You do this, you get this effect. God's designed it that way. And it's the same thing with sin. You know, if you and I sin, we know that the effect of sin leads to separation from God. It means broken relationship with God. It means that some of the, 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 the effects of that are the loss of joy, a loss of peace, a loss of hope. Despair begins to fill our soul. There's a, you know, we get more fearful, more paranoid. Relationships are impaired because of it. There's a whole negative track that goes down there because sin brings about loss. It brings about the end of things, the cessation of things, the dying of things. It's tragic, you know. And a lot of times what happens is when people make bad decisions, what's the normal thing we do is we blame other people for why life isn't working for us and we don't take responsibility for our actions. We're going to see how this chain, this cycle can be broken later on here in the message. So God reminds the people of the good thing he's done for them and he asks them what possessed them to break his covenant. Why had they done this? You know, was it just easier to settle into the promised land and not obey God and just begin to accommodate the cultures around them? And by the way, before we get too harsh on the Israelites, we need to understand there's a lesson we need to learn from this. You and I are living, in a sense, in a land filled with Canaanites. You know, it's called non-believers. And they have a whole different value system. And they see life totally differently. And we're being bombarded with the messages every single day how you and I need to respond to life. We're being taught how to accommodate sin. Do you realize that? As a matter of fact, today in our culture, we're just legalizing sin. You know? See, we think it's the freedom you know, to sin. And I, I will argue that God's grace, and even the church now is misunderstanding grace, and we think God's grace is the freedom to sin rather than the freedom from sin. God's grace is to give us the power to say no to sin. As a matter of fact, if you read um, Titus, he says, grace teaches us to say to no to all ungodliness and all worldliness. And so God's grace is the empowerment to actually be able to say no to what's wrong in our lives and have the power to do what's right. And yet we're seeing that as a culture, we're doing more and more wrong things, and everyone accepts that as being normal. And we're saying, we make statements like, everybody's okay, everybody, you know, we need to accept everybody no matter what they're doing. But what we don't understand is when we affirm what people are doing, we're actually affirming their destruction. That's all we're doing. We're not helping people. We think we are, we think we're being nice, but we're actually allowing people to perish in the process. And, and so the church has you know, become very compromised in its understanding because we're embracing the cultural standards. Matter of fact, Paul, when writing to the church at Galatia, says this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. See, Jesus is a savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins. It's not just he came to save us from the penalty of sin. Jesus came to save us from the power of sin. Jesus came to deliver us. Jesus came to bring freedom into our lives. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. To live in the grace of Christ means to live in freedom from sin. To say no to it. 
to say yes to righteousness, to say yes to God's purposes for our lives. And then he says, now you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Isn't that what's happening today? That there's a lot of confusion, there's a lot of perversion, and we're, we just don't understand anymore what's right and wrong anymore. Young people are growing up and they're confused. And, they're, and you know, a lot of Christians are becoming confused. I'm going, why are we confused? I think it's because we're not spending time in the Word of God. We don't know God's standard anymore. You know, not only do we battle spiritual compromise as it relates to false teaching, but we're also battling the spirit of compromise as it relates to moral living. And that's probably the greatest challenge for the church today. You know, this problem of, uh, you know, either living for Christ or living for self. And it's a tension. You know, a lot of people want to serve God on their terms. You know, God, I want you to do this for me. God, this is my plan in my life. Please bless me in my plan. God goes, I don't feel any obligation to do your plan. You know, can I say this? God's plan for our lives is greater than our own plan for our lives. God's will for you is greater than your will. You know, God has a better plan and and, a more gracious plan than you have for yourself. But we're afraid. We're afraid, you know, to really trust God. You know, we're afraid to say, God, I really want to do your will. I want to live for your purposes. I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to be a part of your agenda. And folks, listen to me. When you and I surrender our will to God and we get up and we say, your will be done today, and we begin to walk in the will of God, what we discover is God is going to accomplish his purposes. God's going to bring resources to accomplish his will because he's going to do it. And he wants to include us in it. That's the beauty of it. Listen to the Apostle Paul's challenge to live a surrendered life to Christ, which is really a transformed life, a changed life. He says this, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Isn't it ironic that we have all this conflict in the church over form and style of worship? And we don't even understand what the essence of worship is. You know what the essence of worship is? To live a godly life. Where the real worship happens when I leave the building. The real worship begins to happen as I live out my life, a life dedicated and surrendered to God. I'm giving my God, my body as to God. I'm making myself a living sacrifice. God's not interested in dead sacrifices. He's interested in our living sacrifice. And that's powerful. Then he goes on to say here, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Well, isn't that kind of a challenge? That's the pressure we're experiencing. You know, he says, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How do you have your mind renewed? You're in the word of God. You know, you start finding out what God's will is. You know, so many people say to me, pastor, I really don't have time to spend time in the Bible. I don't have any time for it. But yet the average person watches four or five hours of TV a day. It's just a misuse of our time is what it comes down to. Do you know what would happen if you and I just started spending more time in the Word of God? Your minds would start moving in a whole new direction. I, I, I have experienced this. You know, you don't realize that you're paying me to study the Bible. That's kind of an amazing job, right? And, I, and, some, you know, and not all pastors take advantage of that. I, I've been around this for a long time. But you know, this past year, I think I spent three or four hundred hours on top of sermon preparation in the book of Proverbs. Now, you cannot spend eight or nine hours a day 
researching and asking God to open your heart and studying scriptures, you know what's going to start happening? Your, your thinking's going to be changed. It's going to be impacted. You're going to see things in the scriptures you've never seen before. It's going to change how you see life. It, 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 it affects you in such profound and powerful ways. It encourages. It strengthens. You know, your faith, you know, rises up. You have greater confidence, not in yourself, but in Almighty God. You're not walking around berating yourself and beaten up and living in a state of defeat and despair. God puts hope and strength and encouragement inside of you. And so when the church is walking around this anemic condition, you know, and this compromised mindset, and we start acting like and thinking like and embracing the values of this culture, it just tells me that our minds are in the wrong place. Because it says here that we can be transformed. We can be changed by the renewing of our minds. Amen. Amen? So maybe some of us, we need to evaluate how we're spending our time. Wouldn't that be a great exercise, you know? You want to change your life? If you want to have a more dynamic life, you have to make changes. You can't just keep doing the same things and expect different results. You've got to sit down and say, what am I going to change about my life? You know, I was talking to my daughter. She's a school teacher now, and she's getting ready to teach school. And I said, look, it's real simple. Just because you have the summer off doesn't mean you do nothing. She's got all these books she's got to prepare for. I said, you can wait till the fall and get slammed, or you can sit down every morning, get up disciplined, get up at a certain time, sit down, work out, create lesson plans while you don't have the pressure on you. Just get up and in the afternoons go do what you want. But in the mornings, prepare yourself. By the time the fall hits, you will not be overwhelmed by all the things you need to do. It's all about developing a discipline in your life. Folks, Christians should be the most disciplined people on the planet. You and I should become very successful because we learn to discipline ourselves. And you say, well, I'm not a disciplined person, Pastor. Listen, why don't we ask God's Spirit for help for that? Why don't we say, Lord, I want to be a better person. I want to be a transformed person. I need your help. I'm an undisciplined person. I'll acknowledge that before you. But God, you give us the spirit of discipline. So if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it's possible that you can become more disciplined. Okay. God calls for our surrender to him and his will and purposes for our lives. Isn't that the Lord's prayer? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's not, God, my kingdom come. My will be done. Right? We catching it? We surrender our lives to God. So the messenger that confronts the Israelite here comes from a place called Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is significant. You say, what's significant about it? It's the place where Israel launched off to go into the promised land. And it was at Gilgal that God called them and said, you need to make a fresh consecration to me. You need to surrender yourself to me. You need to lay aside the reproach of Egypt. And that's where they recircumcised. Read the story there in Joshua. And then this is what happens as they're in Gilgal. It says this, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and he said, are you forced? Or are you for our enemies? That's a good question. I mean, whose side are you on? Isn't that kind of what we're saying? You know, God, and, and as Christians, we always walk around going, well, yeah, well, God's on my side. But that's not how God answers here. As a matter of fact, this, we'll find out this is God himself. He says, neither. I'm not for you. I'm not against you, he says. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for a servant? And he says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. How many of that language is a little 
eerily familiar to us. You know, if you think of the story of Moses, you know, Moses goes to a bush that's not being consumed, and it's, you know, the presence of God, and God says, take off your shoes, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. So what's going on here? Joshua's having the same experience. He's meeting with the holy God. He says, take off your shoes, I'm here, it's God. And God says, I am not neither for you nor against you. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the issue? Well, as we're going to see in chapter 2, God becomes against the Israelites when God wants to be for them. So what's the, what, what, how does it work? The issue is not whether God is for us, but rather are we for God? You see, we need to get on his team and not try to just say, well, God, be on my team. We're not the captain. He's the captain, you know? It's not about God doing what we want. Rather, we do what he wants. It's not so much my will as it is God's will. And then God will be for me because really, in essence, I'm for him. You follow that? Hey, if I'm on his team, we're doing his will, we're going to see a certain result. It's not going to be a loss. It's going to be gain, right? It's going to be victory. So let me move on to the second thing uh, that we learn about disobedience. Number one, God will confront it. God will always deal with it. And if you and I don't repent, eventually he'll expose it. It'll go public. You've got to deal with it when he starts talking to you. Number two, there are consequences. Negative things begin to happen in our lives when we turn our backs on the will of God. When we stop doing what God wants us to do, we can anticipate problems. Whenever we forsake God, we can expect sorrow to come into our lives. Be prepared to cry. That's why I named his sermon, The Place of Weeping. Disobedience always produces sorrow. Just It does. Verse 3, Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you, the nations... They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will become a snare to you. Now remember, had God had promised them, I'm going to go in with you, we'll drive out the nations, just obey me. They stop doing that. God says, okay, I'm just going to leave them there, and they're going to cause grief to you. If you and I don't deal with the sin in our life, God will just leave it there to haunt us. And we will live in a defeated state. And I'm convinced there are too many Christians living in a defeated state. Gotten really quiet in here tonight. We're not living in victory. We're not excited about our faith. We're just going through the motions. Yeah, I love God. I know God, but I'm not excited. There's no real spiritual dynamic. I'm not on the cutting edge. I'm not God's elite troop. You know, how many know it's a lot different when you're, you know, you're, we, we, every once in a while people go on a missions trip, you know, get all cranked up and they prepare themselves and they go on the mission, you know, they're all fired up. Then they come home and they fizzle. Come on, that's the way it is. I've, I've been, that, been a pastor so long. It's just the way it works. You know, why don't we just get off that, you know, high for the moment business and just start disciplining ourselves to live in a state of victory? Amen. Why don't we just live a consistent Christian life? Why don't we just say, God, I want to be one of your elite people. I want you to use me in a significant way. And God says, great, because I, I, I don't, can't find a lot of people like that. I want to do that. God wants to use us. You say, well, yeah, but I'm a nobody. I tell you something, God loves the nobodies. You know, David was a nobody. He was a guy that his dad didn't even think he should be the king. Remember, his brothers all showed up for the coronation experience. David was out there taking care of sheep. He was a nobody, but God used him, right? And God's spirit came on David, and then all of a sudden he's killing bears, killing lions, killing giants. Come on now. You say, well, I'm a nobody. God says, that's right. Who cares? Who's going to get the credit when a nobody does some things that are beyond their ability. Glory to God. 
it's not me that's doing this. You know, Peter and John, you know, they, they were nobodies. They were just fishermen up in Galilee, just a bunch of nobodies, but they met Jesus. How many know Jesus changed their life? So one day they come along and see this guy, you know, he's sick. They said, we don't have any money, but what we'll give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the guy started walking. And then they said to him, why are you looking at us as if by some power we had or some holiness inside of us that caused this to happen? No, this is the power of God. This is what God does to a life that's surrendered to him. It's profound and powerful. It says in verse 4, When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. In other words, they were convicted. They were being confronted. And they called that place Bochum. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Boy, they're getting right with God. You think this was going to last. Unfortunately, it didn't. You know, great Ob says, Bochum is in fact another name for Bethel, which means the house of God. It's just another, it's a synonym. It's, not, it's, it's basically another name that was given, that something that happened at this place called Bethel. And we read the story in Genesis 35. You know, all these words have symbolism and significance in the Bible. And Jacob and the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel. Bethel literally means, El is the name of God. Beth in Hebrew is house, the house of God in the land of Canaan. And there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel, God of the house of God, right? And because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And then it says, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and he, she was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakuth. Now, all of a sudden there was a tragedy here. And someone they deeply loved, one of the nurses, one of the people that raised kids, cared for kids, she had passed away. Everybody was weeping. And they buried her under an oak tree. And so they named the place the Oak of Weeping. And this happened at the place called Bethel. And so there's a, there's a, there's a connection in their minds between the house of God and the place where there's weeping, where there's some sorrow. And, you know, the house of God isn't just a place of joy, but sometimes it's a place of sorrow. It's a place where we get our, our, our houses in order. We get our personal hearts in order. We get our lives in order. And there's tears in our eyes. And we're recognizing I'm wrong and I need to make a change in my life. And what a wonderful way to do that. We can actually have an experience where we come and we encounter Almighty God and He makes this transformation in our lives. What a great thing to have happen in our lives. You know, it's at the house of God where God challenges us with areas in our lives that are disobedient. How many know that's true? You know, we come to church, you know, I'm, I'm just going to come to church. I have no idea what God's going to do. You know, God has an agenda. You may not have one when you came tonight. God had one. How many are catching on? God's got an agenda here, and he's going, listen, I want to deal with the things in your life that are wrong. I want to set you free from those things. I want you to live in victory. I want you to experience joy. I want you to know the peace that passes understanding. I want you to have hope in your life. I want you to be, you know, transform people. I want you to live in a way that's totally different than the way the people in the culture are living. But you know, after a while, when you hear sermons, you know, two things begin to happen. First of all, when you're living right, the sermons seem to affirm your life. You know, you're going, wow, I just feel so encouraged. I feel so affirmed. But if I'm living wrong, after a while, you go, you know, I feel convicted. I feel bad. I feel uncomfortable, right? And then we have a choice. We either respond to that and do something about it, or we, where we, where we, 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 we don't respond to it. We harden our hearts, and pretty soon we become indifferent to it, and eventually we go, I don't want to go to church anymore because I don't feel good. I don't enjoy it. It's bugging me. I'm sure, yeah, it's bugging you. You ever thought about how it is that people backslide? How it is that people forsake God? 
It didn't start when they went and did this terrible thing. It started long before that. Let me tell you. It starts right when we're sitting in the pew. We're making bad choices in life. And God's confronting us. You know what we're doing? I'm going, I'm not interested in doing the right thing. And we, we harden our heart. That's why the scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The key issue in our life is the heart condition. You and I can either have a tender heart or a hard heart. We can either respond to God or we can reject God. We can just ignore what he's saying. But I'll tell you what happens. We just get hard. And that's what the nature of sin is. It hardens our heart. And then people eventually forsake the house of God. And then, you know, we don't want to hear these things anymore. We don't want to hear about living right. Isn't that true? So then the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 10. Let's not give up meeting together as is in the habit of some. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see what? The day approaching. You know that word, the day. It's a heavy term. You know, when I read that word in capitalization, the day, you know what this is? This is the day God comes back. And he is going to judge us. And you know, nobody wants to talk about that. You know, I'm preaching through Revelation. This is God's judgment day. You know, it's a day when God says, I'm going to rectify all the wrongs. And all the people that have done their own things and thought they were in concealment and sinning and all the rest, God says, I'm just bringing it all up to light. I'm going to address every life according to the deeds done in their body. Wow. I tell you, you know, if you're going to meet Almighty God tonight, you want to be in a right condition. You want to say, Lord, I want to have no outstanding debt with you. I want to make sure that everything is, we're, we're, we're good, God. You and I are on a good scale. I mean, I've repented of every sin I can think of. I mean, if you thought you were dying in about five minutes, you say, Lord, I, I just want to make sure there's not a one problem between us, right? Because I'm going to meet you face to face. I don't want to have any of these issues here. No outstanding issues, right? Yeah. Then we see here, uh, another consequence of disobedience is what is going to be taken from us. Do you know that sin costs? You lose joy. You lose peace. You can lose finances. You can lose health. You can lose family members. You can lose relationships. I can just go down the list. All, all it's going to, you know, it promises gain, but it always diminishes. Sin will always diminish you as a person. It will always make you feel less than you are. You know, the Spirit of God will enhance your life. The Spirit of sin and evil will diminish you as an individual. After a while, you'll begin to despise yourself. You'll hate yourself. You'll, 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 you're going you're gonna, to you know, look at yourself and you're going to feel like you know, you got no value. Sin diminishes us. We need to know that. It's tragic. And then it says here, it leads to incredible bondage. How many people, you know, uh, you know they're living in absolute bondage today. Most of the culture in North America is in bondage. I don't know if you guys know that. They're addicted. They're addicted to drugs. They're addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to gambling. Want me to keep going down? We got addictions coming about our ears, you know. But you know, what are we going to do with these addictions? Oh, I know the answer. We'll legalize them. We've legalized alcohol. We've legalized drugs. We're legalizing gambling. We're legalizing all of our addictions. But is it going to help our culture? It's just going to make things worse. That's what's happening. Then it says in verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge, you know, because what happens when you're in bondage, you're at the low point, and a lot of times you just finally go, I got to do something. You start crying out to God. Do you know that cry from the depths of our being, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what God does? He responds to that. He responds to that cry. 
Look at verse 18. It says, Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies. And as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them, as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. I'm going to tell you right now, sin is an oppressor, and it's an afflictor. That's what it does. And here we read, you know, God says, I, I will answer the groan. And it's, it's fascinating because this groan, this word groan is only used three times in the Old Testament. Isn't that fascinating? And it's used in the story of the Exodus. Both, both the stories are in the Exodus. It's the groaning of Israel under Egyptian slavery. Remember, God says, I'm going to come down because I've heard the cry of my people. I've heard the groan. I've heard the agony. I've heard the pain, the brokenness of the bondage that they're in. Listen, when you and I come to God and we're in that state, we're groaning under the weight of our sin. God responds to that. It's amazing. He sends a Savior. That's why Jesus came. You know, moreover, it says in chapter 6, verse 5 of Exodus, I've heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. What's he telling us? God hears our pain. God hears our cry. God hears our anguish. And his mercies are there for us. But let me move on to the third point. Third thing we learned about disobedience. There's a cycle to it. There's a cycle to it. Actually, when you study the book of Judges, it's one cycle after another. They groan, God delivers, God blesses, they forget God, they do their own thing, they end up embracing the idols of the land, the false gods, they go back into bondage, they go back into groaning. God has to raise up a new deliverer. This is a cycle that keeps repeating itself throughout the book of Judges. But how many here can say, you know what, that's my cycle, Pastor? Yeah, it sounds like my life. You know, I sin, I ask God to forgive me, then I do it again. I sin, and then... You know, I want to be free from this, but I just keep doing the same thing. I just keep, you know, I, I just can't seem to break out of this thing. I know it's wrong. I keep asking God to forgive me. How in the world can I get free from this thing? You know, let me point out a, a something we need to understand. Do you know there's a difference between repentance and remorse? Let me just show you. Remorse is an emotion that brings weeping over the consequence of sin. You know, I've worked with people so long, and I, and, and I can say this. How many have ever worked with somebody... And they're in such bad shape, and they come to you, and you try to help them, and you're working with them, and they get back on their feet, right? Have you had that experience? And they're doing so good, and you're just rejoicing, and then all of a sudden they go sideways. They go right back to where they were. You go, why did you do that? You know, we, we, we did all this work together. We, we, we got right up here, right back down again. Because a lot of times what people are, you know what they're, they're, they're weeping over? They're weeping over the consequence and not the fact that they actually sinned. They're not weeping over the fact that what brought them there. They're just weeping over the effects of it. You see, they're, they're, they enjoyed the sin. They just don't enjoy the consequence. And once they're up beyond the consequence, they go back to the sin. You know, it's like a dog, you know. It's a disgusting habit. But, you know, if they vomit, they go back and they eat it. You go, what's the problem with these things? You know? And you see this people doing this over and over again. It's so frustrating when you're working with individuals because they're involved in this thing about remorse. And it does not produce any lasting change in their behavior. How many go, I've seen it, Pastor. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, you've seen it. You say, so what's the distinction? What makes the difference? Here's what Paul says. 
He's going to make a contrast. He says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. I'm reading 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. You go, what's repentance? Repentance is a change of your thinking. It's a change of what you understand. You're changing your thought. You're coming into an agreement with God and you're agreeing that what you were doing was wrong and evil and destructive and you purpose in your heart, you know, by the grace of God, I'm never going to do that again because I see the problem with that behavior. I'm not going to do that. And it leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow or remorse brings death. You see, there's a sorrow that's just, I'm sorry about being caught. I'm not sorry about what I really did. You know, I'm sorry about the consequence in my life. Repentance leads to salvation. It begins with turning. Here we see it begins with the turning away from God. We see these people turning away from God. And when did that happen? It says here, after the death of Joshua and the elders who had outlived them, there arose another generation who did not experience the things of God. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They had forgotten. We are living in that moment right now. People have forgotten. You know, we have short-term memories. It's really amazing. People don't know the story. It's so important that we keep telling people the story over and over again because people have a tendency to forget. That's why we've got to keep reminding people. Because we have a short attention span. You know, we are one generation away from extinction. And let me say it to you this way. You know, one generation's com- compromise is the next generation's condemnation. And I'm going to explain it to you this way. If I'm a generation and I know what's right and I know what's wrong, but I choose what's wrong, the ne- next generation does not know what's right. And they're following in my bad choice. And all they have to choose from is death. That's where we are right now, folks. My generation grew up. They knew right from wrong. They knew what was right. They knew what was wrong. They chose the wrong as a, as a collective. And this generation growing up right now hasn't got a clue. They don't know their right hand from their left, for the most part. Now, there's young people that are exceptions. Don't misunderstand. Let me tell you something. If you're a young person right now and you have a love for Christ, you are so million miles ahead of where the rest of the culture is. It's unbelievable. And if you will obey God, you will excel. You will become the head. You will become powerful, successful leadership people in our country. I'll just tell you that right now. Because the majority of people are listening to the voice of this culture and they're going to all be condemned. They're self-destructing. I'm watching it over and over again. They're just self-destructing. When we, uh, listen, being informed is not the same as being impacted. This is one of the great deceptions in the Christian church. You know, in this context, not to know means not to show respect for. Let me say it to this way. A lot of times we hear information and then we assume we're doing the information. I've been guilty of that. I have an understanding, and then after a while you think you're actually doing it, when in reality all you do is have an intellectual understanding of it. What really brings about transformation and change is when I begin to do what I know. It's not enough to know something. We can't just assume because we know something we're doing it. 
There's a difference. You know, how many know, you know, yeah, I know, I, you know, you ever talk to some people and you go, yeah, I know how to do that. Well, have you ever done it? No, no, but I know how to do it. How many have ever had that experience with somebody? You know, I know how to do it, but have you done it? No, I've never done it. But I know how to do it. How do you know how to do it? Well, I've seen it. Okay. Yeah, but seeing it doesn't mean you've done it. I said, here, why don't you try it? And when they try it, they go, this is really hard. You see, we're all great critics. We all think we know more than we really know. But when we try to do it, it's a lot more difficult than we realized. Isn't that the truth? See, I can tell you, you know, we need to spend time daily in, our, in the Bible. You go, yeah, I know that. But the question is, are you doing it? It's one thing to know something, another thing to do it. Knowing it isn't going to change your life. Doing it is going to change your life. You see the difference? Big difference, folks. And this is a big problem in the church. We have, we have a lot of information and very little application. Great information. We can go on the internet, we can pop up anything we want to, but the reality is we're really limited on application. And that's why there's no transformation. It says in verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they say they served the Baals. Now notice, if you're not serving God, you're serving idols. Okay? Well, wait, wait a minute, Pastor. Oh, you're going way too far. Listen, if I'm not serving God, that doesn't mean I'm serving the devil. Yes, it does. There's no, there's no fence sitters. There's nobody that can say, well, you know, I'm not serving God, neither am I serving the devil. I'm just sitting on the fence. There is no fence. You see, if you're not for him, you're against him. It's real simple. Jesus said that. You have to be for him. You've got to be over there. And when we don't serve God, we serve idols. And we're wired to worship and serve. We just are. We can't help ourselves. You go, well, what do you mean I serve idols, Pastor. That means that you try to fill your life with things that you think will make you happy. Come on, let's be honest. If I don't really serve God, I'm going to use my time to do all kinds of other things. I'm going to develop hobbies. I'm going to go out and have, you know, quote-unquote fun. I'm going to hang with friends. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But what we don't realize is I'm choosing not to serve God. I'm choosing to do all of these things. And why am I choosing to do those things? To make me happy to bring fulfillment in my life. And what I'm saying is, that's what this promise is, but it never, it never delivers what you think it's going to. You know, If we don't worship and serve God, then we'll worship and serve that which is false. It's just the way it works. We try and fill the emptiness of our souls with something, and the tragedy is that anything less than God will never truly satisfy us. And that's because God designed you and I with a huge void in our life. There's an emptiness inside of us. How many of you kind of know what I'm talking about? A restlessness and emptiness. Why did God, you say, well, that's not fair. Why did God do that, Pastor? Because God designed you and I to be in a relationship with him, and God designed such a big emptiness inside of us because he's big. He's going to fill it. It takes, you know, you got to make a lot of room to let God in. Okay, so when you let God in, that emptiness disappears. That void becomes filled with his presence. All of a sudden, you're going, you know, this is amazing. I have God's presence in my life. All of a sudden, there's a contentment. I don't have to run around and do a whole bunch of stupid things like everybody else is doing and think that I'm having fun doing it. I don't have to do that anymore because I'm satisfied. There's a contentment inside of my soul. I like what Cheryl Brown writes. She said, Canaanite religion, essentially the fertility cults, had strong appeal to two areas, physical gratification and economic security and success. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound like today? 
The whole culture is driven on physical gratification and economic security and success. How many say that's true? true. That's what's driving our culture. That, those are idols. Okay? Now, she says, it was not only great business to worship Baal, but also great fun. You see? I mean, let's face it. If there was no temptation to do the wrong thing, people wouldn't do it. Hello? But I want you to think about something. Here's Moses. He's now the prince of Egypt. But his people are the slaves building the pyramids. You follow the story? This is what Moses made. Moses made an interesting decision. And this is what it says in the book of Hebrews. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy what? The fleeting pleasure of sin. What does the word fleeting mean? It's temporary. It's like a vapor just vanishes, okay? So in other words, sin has pleasure, but it doesn't last very long. And what it, what it, what it promises, what it does is promise you this, in, this amazing pleasure, but then when you get into it, you find out it's not so pleasurable anymore, and eventually there's the emotional pain and hurt and baggage and scarring and difficulty and the entanglement and the sorrow and the shame and the embarrassment. All these things come with it. It, it wrecks us on the inside, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, in every which way. It says here, why did Moses choose to identify with the slaves rather than to live as the, in the courtly palace? Because it says he regarded the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. How many know that the most successful people on the planet are people that know how to defer gratification? You know what I mean by grat- deferred gratification? Let me, let me tell you, this is what they've done. They go into classrooms to little children, five or six years old. They say, okay, listen, I'm going to put a candy here, okay? If you do not eat it for the next five minutes, you're going to see the clock, five minutes, you don't eat it, we'll come back in five minutes and give you three more, okay? So the little kid is looking at the clock, and the person leaves the room. You know what happens? If they can just wait five more minutes, they're going to get three times the amount But the temptation is so great, most of them eat the candy. Then the person comes in and they go, where's my other candy? And they go, you ate the candy. That's the consequence. You see, now there are some kids who will sit there and they're looking at the clock and they're going, I'm not going to look at that candy. I'm not going to look at that candy. I don't want to eat that candy. Because what they're saying to themselves is, I know if I can wait five minutes, I get three more. They have done studies on this, and they have followed the children who were able to defer gratification and have discovered they are the most successful people in life. Is that powerful? Moses recognized there was a greater reward in the future than there was in the present. That's why Moses is remembered today. And most of us don't even know the Pharaoh that he defeated. There's all kinds of debate over which one it was. Is that amazing? You see how powerful this really is in our lives. So let me close with this. Let's skip over their stubbornness to serve God. Uh, God's grace revealed in spite of rebellion and sin. But let's just talk about for a minute the breaking of the cycle. Because isn't that the most important thing in our life? How, How can we break this thing, Pastor? 
Let me just close with this thought with us. And I've said this many times recently. People who are content are really difficult to succumb to sin. People who are satisfied in their relationship with God and satisfied to the point that the outward things in life are not defining them, they're not going to be tempted the same way. That's true. You know, I love this verse in Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 talks about contentment. This is the real issue in our... Because most people, you know, if we sat down and we had a monitor, if I could just gauge us for a minute, you know, plug us all in and go, where are you in the contentment monitor? This is really amazing. How content are you? That would tell me exactly where you are in your relationship with God. Okay? This is what Paul says. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. How many say this kind of shatters the prosperity message right now? Paul is basically saying, listen, it's not about having what life has to offer. See, that's what we think is going to make us happy. If that's true, then the richest people in the world should be the happiest people in the world. But we know that that's not true. A lot of them are miserable. A lot of them have committed suicide. A lot of them are famous. A lot of them are so broken and messed up. Paul says that's not the secret of life. The secret of life is not fame. It's not fortune. The secret of life is being contented. The real secret, how to, how to learn to be a contented person. To just enjoy life. To be happy with who you are and where you're at in life, no matter what's happening to you. How many think that would be the most powerful thing? Because now, what's, how much I have doesn't define me anymore. What's going on in my life is no longer defining me. I'm just content. How many say, I would choose contentment over that? Isn't that a beautiful thought? I'm going to choose contentment. I'm going to give you the secret now. It's going to break the chain right now. Here it comes. How to be content. I've learned the secret, he said. You know what it is? I can do all of this through Christ, through him, it says, but it's Christ. Through Christ, who gives me that strength. In other words, my contentment is based on my relationship with Jesus. You see, I know he's a good God. I know that he loves me. I know his plan is not to harm us, it's to do us good. Isn't that beautiful? You know, if I'm on God's page and I'm doing God's will, I have every confidence that God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? You see, I'm walking with God. That's the contented person. We're going to stand tonight. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And I, and I, and I was just thinking of uh, the psalm. The psalmist, you know, who basically says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. You know, sometimes we have to learn the hard way, right? We, we, we realize now the importance of obeying God's word. I'm going to ask the question tonight with every head bowed, every eye closed. This is between you and God. Listen, if you raise your hand, I have no idea what you're raising your hand for. I'm not your judge tonight. I'm your pastor. I'm your fellow brother in Christ. I'm your friend. I want you to succeed in life. But right now, between you and God, you know that there's places in your soul that are keeping you from experiencing contentment and joy and victory. You know there's places in your soul, there's brokenness and there's hurt. And you're not, you're not living the life that I'm talking about. It's not like, okay, I'm doing God's will. I'm just flowing with God. But the reality is I'm struggling. 
And there may be, I may be even self-medicating. You know, I'm struggling with things in my life. But tonight I want to be free. I want to be free from sin's power tonight. The Bible said Jesus came that he might free us from sin. Jesus came to save us from our sins, to free us from our sins. Not just the penalty of sin, but its very power. And just before you and God, you've been struggling. Just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need help. Just raise your hand and say, Lord, I need help. Raise your hand right now. That's you. Don't be ashamed. Raise your hand. Just say, I need help. I need help. God's going to hear the cry of your soul tonight. I'm going to pray with you. He's a Savior. Just remember, He's going to free you. He's going to give you contentment. We don't have to be famous. We don't have to be rich. We just need to know God's love, filling the broken, empty places of our soul. It's so powerful. And He wants to do this for every one of us in this room. Say, oh, I'm not even a child of God. I don't even know if I believe in God. I'll tell you, if you open your heart to Him right now, He'll come into your life. That's just the way He is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that your presence is here. We started the message with, there's things we do not see. There's things that we're not even grasping because it's not even in our experience radar. But it's happening. Your presence is here, Lord. And your power is so great. Your love is beyond our comprehension. Your ability to forgive is beyond our understanding. And I pray tonight, Father, that you would fill us with your love. Fill us with your presence tonight. Fill us in the broken places, the empty places. Lord, fill us, oh God, so that we can walk out of here going, boy, am I ever content. I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied with the knowledge of God's love. I'm satisfied with the joy and the peace that he's bringing into my soul. It's actually transforming my innermost being. It's affecting me, and I'm no longer being defined by the pressures of this world, the values of this world, the ideology of this world. I'm not being squeezed into this world's mold any longer. I'm free. I'm being changed by God's amazing grace. I'm receiving it right now. I'm receiving the freedom I'm receiving the freedom from the struggles. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's the struggle with, you know, I've been self-medicating on drugs and I'm hooked and I want to be free. You know, maybe there's unforgiveness and bitterness and anger, unresolved issues in my soul. I want to just lay those down right now, Lord. I pray for the spirit of forgiveness. I pray for the spirit of freedom to overwhelm my innermost being right now. I'm here to meet with you, Jesus. I'm here to worship you, Jesus. I'm here to experience your living presence, to have your joy, your hope fill my heart. Thank you, Lord. I'm receiving right now. I'm receiving all that I need in my life. I'm receiving the love that I need. There's a deficiency inside me. I'm receiving all the love that... I'm praying that you're going to give us such a capacity to receive your presence right now that all the things that are beckoning us away from you, those voices would be dispelled and quieted and stilled within our hearts. And the voice of God would break into our soul in a deeper way. And we just thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.